Welcome to the Celebration Community Church Podcast, where we exist to meet God, grow in Him, and serve through Him. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the C3 Podcast. I am Derek Mayfield, and across the table from me is... Nathan Purdue, Podcast Dictator. Well, yes, but today we're kind of switching roles, and I get to be in the dictator chair, uh, because what we're going to be talking about is what is in the Bible, and as one of your roles here at Celebration as the Worship and Discipleship Director, uh, you get to teach the Bible Basics class, and so... We're going to be talking a little bit about that today, but before we get into the meat of the episode, Nathan, you have a pretty exciting change coming up in your life as we're preparing this this episode. So yes. why don't you tell everybody what that is? Hmm. Well, I just got Roblox. Yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah, I have Tate, Tate and I have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, my wife and I are expecting our first biological child any moment. I, you know, it's to the point where during this podcast recording, she could text me and say, Hey, I'm going to give birth. That, and that would make for a shorter I, episode. It, it would, which might be something that's a little bit more desirable. But I won't, <laughs> I won't, I didn't instruct her to, te- to call me and say, um, hey, halfway through our recording, just say that you're giving birth. It would be a convenient excuse it that would. not a lot of people would ever question, though. That's true. So. Okay, go, go, go. Yeah, yeah so no, you, you... You need to be elsewhere. Like. Right. You you have some experience in the in the parenting thing, as you and Marge have, have done some fostering. And, and uh, so I know that you have a little bit of an idea of what to expect as the child gets older. What are you most terrified of? Becoming the parent of a newborn for the very first time. Okay, a couple things. First one is like physical, and then the next one is developmental. Okay. First, physical, babies are f- super fragile. I mean, they come with built-in self-destruct buttons. Like, <laughs> how is this fair? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I am a little concerned. Uh, and I, I would admit that it's a little bit of anxiety of like, I'm going to do something that destroys my child. Uh-huh. Like, and that's probably also the thing that I'm worried about in the developmental thing. There's going to be some sort of thing that I do or say or way that I parent that is just going to set this child up for a lifetime of like having to get over this thing. And it will be something uh-huh. very, very small. Like right. I remember this one time when I was playing youth sports and I was I had used the restroom and I was walking back to our dugout. We were playing baseball, and this parent said to me, "Hey, Purdue, you lo- you're more of a door than a window." <laughs> As I was walking by to get back to the dugout, and that has stuck with me forever. So now I'm very, very self conscious about being at a sporting event and being in people's line of sight. Yes, and that was just an off the cusp thing. So if that's that foundational to me, right? I mean, the stakes are really high. Yeah. So there's a, there's <laughs> a, a lot bit, of ways you can it's mess a this up. It's yeah. scary to me. Uh, I think yes. that's I think that's parenting summed up right there. Margaret and I have have said together, if we make it to twelve years old, we're going to be golden. It's those first yeah. twelve years that are really going to be the uh, right the, the difference. But our son's 
brother recently had a child, and uh-huh. I was christened in our in my office when we were taking care of her. <laughs> her. Right. So I I've already been blown out on. I'm I'm ready for that, and you know. Normal bodily functions, that's not the really real concern of mine. It's more the things that are just, like, going to last forever. So you're not easily queasy, you're saying? Poop is temporary. Okay, Words right. are eternal. You well, know? <laughs> word of advice from a, a father of two. A.K.A. Um, the resident expert. <laughs> <on> very <laughs> much no. Um, but a little um, token of advice. When your wife goes into labor... If it happens to be later in the evening and you have not had food yet, grab some food and eat it. Because at three in the morning, when those bright lights come on in the delivery room and you haven't ate anything for over 12 hours, you all of a sudden become the one that they're concerned about because you're about to pass out. So I think that is the funniest <laughs> story in the world because of the fact that like this is a huge like medical and, and physical ordeals yes. for your wife. And yet like, I didn't eat food. So the doctors are worried about We have a doula there to help my wife deliver the baby to be her support. And she's staring across the, the bed at me like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't think I am. And she's like, I'm going to go get you some food and some water. I was like, okay, and oh man, and I'm a problem solver. I want to be the person to support other people, and so like that was just not a fun experience. So that moment will live in infamy for yes, you. If, it will, and if we ever have another child, I will be sure to eat some food before going to the <laughs> hospital because I'm not. Was doing that for Tate and Riken? That was for Riken. So Tate and I was fine. Tate came in the middle of the afternoon, so we had actually been at the hospital for a while. Riken kind of came. And late at night, and then was born in the middle of the night, and so it just was not a good setup for me, for for how I had ate food that day. Um, Nathan, what are you most excited about? I think just the, like the the little things, like watching him learn to read, mm-hmm. watching and and getting to experience things with with him for the first time, like going hiking for the first time, even though, you know, sometimes those are ordeals within themselves, just that those, those little landmarks that have been so influential in my life. And now I get to invite another life form into that as well. And I know that sounds like, like a really, uh, strange way to put it, but I think those are really simple pleasures that are really enjoyable. Like right now, one of my favorite things to do and admittedly, sometimes I'm so busy that I don't do it enough is I have the chance to feel him moving in Margaret's stomach right Uh now. And that's like the coolest thing in the world just to be like, Hey, there literally is a human in here. (laughs) And, and that's, that's just a a really pleasant thing. And amidst all of the challenge, I'm really excited for those simple moments or like seeing ride a bike or, yeah. Anything like that, you know, I'm I'm excited for those rites of passage. Yeah, definitely. Well, we are excited for you guys as well and know that uh, you and Margaret are going to do a fantastic job um, as parents of an infant. So we're looking forward to that for you. So that's our little introduction, getting to know a little bit about what's going on in Nathan's life. We'll be right back with the meat of our topic today, what's in the Bible. Thank you.
is the Bible. That's our topic today, a very large topic. We're not going to be able to cover everything that's in the Bible in this episode, or else you would probably stop listening, uh, because that would be a very long episode. But what we want to... Spanning the course of several lifetimes. Yes, exactly. But what we want to do today is kind of give an introduction to what is the Bible. So if you've just kind of wondered, you know, what's what's the point? Why is the Bible such a big deal? Uh, that's what we want to talk about today. And so, Nathan, I want to start with with this first question, just very generally. What is the Bible? That's a great question. And I think that that question varies for a lot of people. Um, for the confessing Christian, the person who, who says that, that Jesus is Lord, the Bible has to mean something very different than you know someone who is just interested in the literary value of the scriptures. At the very least, the Bible is a collection of stories that talk about the God of the Israelites um, coming in contact with the Israelites through history, mm-hmm. and then actually coming into the human situation and condition and teaching how to live. That I think that that's reductionistic. Sure. Um, just talking about the story. Um, but you know, at most, we we use terms like the living word of God mm-hmm. to talk about what the Bible is. and th- and that talks about, you know, revelation, not the the book of revelation, but specifically how we can access what the divine has communicated to us. So um, looking at the scriptures as somehow, you know, there's, there's a little bit of mystery in here, but somehow through the scriptures, God has made known his will and his plan for everything or how the world is supposed to be, about how things have gone wrong, about how to restore what we see to his original plan or to the fulfillment of his continuing plan. Sure. So let's talk a little bit for a second about kind of those extremes on a view of Scripture. If someone has too low a view of Scripture, says it's just a book, What's the problem in viewing the Bible as this is just a book with stories that, yeah, maybe I can gain something from it and teach myself something, but it's just a book. So what, what would be a problem? So I, I specifically want to talk about you know a, a church attendee, because I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you see that God... The existence of God needs to change your life in some way, shape, or form. Right. So having too low a view of the scriptures is to say that, yes, God exists, however, there isn't a, a pr- preferential line of communication between him and humanity. His will is kind of divorced from communicating that to humanity. Um, In Matthew 22, there is a story about the Sadducees who don't believe in bodily resurrection. So this is in the time of Jesus, and Jesus is is saying something to the the extent of, to the Sadducees, that, that they don't believe in the scriptures and the power of God. So in some way, the scriptures are a medium by which the power of God and even the the revelation of God's 
character and his spirit come to us. So having too low of a view of the Bible actually misses out on connection with God. And as a Christian, I think that that's probably one of the most, if not the most important thing that I can do with my time is to actively participate in relationship with God who desires and initiates that relationship. Right. Absolutely. So is it possible to have too high a view of Scripture? And if so, what would be the potential issues with something like that? I think it, I think it is. So when we look at John, uh, John's gospel, the, the first line is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right. So when we use this title, the Word of God, what we should think of is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there are times, and and... Honestly, this is kind of a, a battle with psychology. Humans like order, yeah, and they like rules. If we are so insistent on treating the Bible as a rule book that unlocks the secret code to being fiscally well off or or something like that or adhering to laws so that we can achieve something, we kind of give the Bible the rank of divinity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably too high a view of the scriptures. The scriptures are a means of revelation. They are not the thing to be revelatory in and of themselves. That's what God is for. So if we think about (laughs) this, and and this is kind of a convoluted uh, example or analogy, we might say that the, the Bible is the funnel Mm-hmm. by which God is revealed to us right. uh, primarily. Mm-hmm. There are also other revelations of God. Many people talk about a, a salvation experience when they have transcended their, their selves and felt the presence of God near to them. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can think of a lot of people who, who talk about feeling something, and, and that's not a bad thing. Now, it does need to be tested, and we need to graduate from experiential kind of things, while those are still important, they need not be the only way we commune with God. Right. I've I've heard it explained, like looking at the Bible um, for a follower of Jesus as not a textbook, but more a roadmap. Because what do we see in a textbook? Now, is this a foolproof analogy? No. But in a textbook, what do we look for? We look for the answers, and we look for everything to be concrete in a textbook. But what do we look at on a roadmap? On a roadmap, it gives us this idea and of where we're going and where we want to end up and how we want to get there. Yeah. But we also have to pay attention to what's in front of us, and we also have to pay attention when when there's a police officer directing traffic right in front of us. So in, in essence, if, if God's standing there in the road saying, hey, yeah, I know that you read this, but now I want you to take a step in faith over here, we need to be willing to to acknowledge that as well. And so, no, I, I think that's a... I think that's a, a great um, thought there. Practically for you, have you ever read a specific text of the scripture and it means something different to you mm. in two different contexts at two different parts in your yeah, life? Yeah, absolutely, depending on what's going on in life, because God uses those moments to teach me something, and it can be the same verse or same passage or same collection of verses that because of what's going on in my life, I view them very differently. 
right? And so there's always my context that's coming into that as well. And so I, you do have to be aware of that. And we'll talk a lot more about context here. There's a in beautiful a bit. story about the scriptures um, in in light of Jewish interpretation. Uh-huh. A lot of the the Bible, uh, namely the first 39 books, come from the Hebrew scriptures or uh, what's called the Tanakh. Uh, uh-huh. which has to do with the Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im, which are all uh, Hebrew words for the different combinations of the books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. But the the teachers would say that the scriptures are like a gym with a light shining on them. Mm-hmm. And every time that gym turns, you see a different thing. You see it in a different light. And and that's, I think, one of the the beauties of the Bible in itself is if we teach it or if we if we truly use it as the living, breathing Word of God, it will change for us. And that's a good thing because we will see a little bit more of God's character within that. Right, absolutely. So with these, these different kind of chunks of Scripture that you were just talking about with these different names... Is it just a collection of stories and different things from different time periods, or is there an overall story of the Bible that is being told? Yeah, so Tim Mackey, who is the one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, who I really hold in high esteem, who does a much better job of communicating this stuff than that's me. what we use to read through the whole Bible right, in 2019 as a exactly church was right. the Bible Project. And we Project should stuff. go back to reading that again. And again, yeah. and again, because it's such a helpful tool for us. But what he says is, is the Bible is a unified story. While the authors change, the perspectives change, and the the way the narrative moves change, they all tell the story of Yahweh. Yahweh mm-hmm. is the name of God. So right. God is more of a title than an actual name, but Yahweh is his specific name. The first time that you see that is in Genesis 2, 4. When you, whenever you see the word in your Bible, Lord, with smaller capital letters, what that actually is, is the, the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, out of reverence, Jewish people did not actually write his name. They wrote it without vowels, Y-H-W-H, um, which is just a reverential thing that, that we have in the Bible that we can access and, and see that. That's a p- personal name of God. So we can see him intervening in the story. So we see him at the beginning in Genesis 1, making order of the world and creating things and bringing to fruition life and then setting humans as the caretakers and the the collaborators with God. Then we see humans' decision to take that flourishing into their own hands, and those have physical and tangible consequences. But again and again, it is the idea of human... I would say that the the narrative of <laughs> the Bible is is humanity running away from God and, and God seeking unity and making ways to be unified with his people, reaching its fruition in Jesus. So my big takeaway from the Bible Foundations course is, is this one line, and it's the Bible is a library that tells a unified story that reaches its fruition in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus is the central point. Jesus is the right. the central character, the, the climax of the story. Everything from Genesis to Revelation points to 
the Savior in Jesus. And I would almost Messiah. go so far to say that Jesus is the interpretive framework by which we view the rest of the Bible. Sure. So yes. in Genesis 3, you have this very mysterious thing that, that God says to the serpent, and he says that the seed of the woman is coming in a day where you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Mm-hmm. As a Christian reading that, I can call that the first reference to Jesus, right. right? As someone you know who lived in 1000 BC when Jesus was not alive, that would not have meant the same thing. Right. So because I have a greater idea of the larger story of the Bible, I can say, oh yes, I see now that that was a reference to the story of God yes. reaching its fruition in Jesus. Yeah, Yahweh is the ultimate foreshadower right there. I mean, chapter three, we're already saying... Here's here's the here's the high point of the story. Here's the end point of the story. Here's what we're we're working towards. And so, you know, we we talk a lot about the Bible being the the word of God, and 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 a lot of times this word inspired is used when talking about the scriptures. So so Nathan, spend a little bit of time just talking about what does it mean that the Bible is inspired. I took from uh, another scholar, his name is Donald Brash, um, and he has four views of inspiration that I think are really helpful for us to to understand um, while we should not hold all of these positions. And the first uh, mode of inspiration, maybe we can call it that, is general inspiration. So this is talking about the authorship of the Bible, right, and how the divine would work with humans in order to produce the texts the texts of the bible so general inspiration would say that the bible is fully human the authors of the bible are inspired in the same way that shakespeare was inspired to write macbeth or something right. like that uh, that's not a view that we hold we say that the scriptures are god breathed now what does it mean to say that it's God breathed. That, I think that that's a little bit more difficult to yeah. to come to. I think a second view that's a little bit reductive is what's called the verbal plenary view, and maybe an analogy is easy easier for this: that God writes down word for word exactly what should be within the Bible. the The human uh, medium is in a trance-like state, and God is physically directing all of the words on the page. That can run into issues when you see things about, like, when Paul says, hey, I'm saying this as Paul. I don't know that God would mention that if he was <laughs> writing the story right. down like that. So I think that that might be the the too high of the view of the Bible, especially when we think about translation um into 21st century English. Uh As uh, if you've read Shakespeare in your life, you realize that, hey, people don't talk like that anymore. (laughs) That was 1400. We're looking at books that are between 3000 and 2000 years old. So (laughs) it's it's very difficult to, to say, oh yes, God dropped this out of heaven with gold leaf pages in 21st century English so that I can be mm-hmm. able to uh, to understand it. It's just not how it works. Um, another view that I think is getting closer but is still a little bit um, negligent is the idea of varied inspiration, that God and humans are participating together, but there are parts that are directly from God and there are parts that are not directly from God. 
then the question that follows that is, well, how do I discern right. what's from God and what's from not? Especially when it's not as easy to decipher as when Paul says, I'm writing this in my opinion. Right. Um, so when when you look at the the Gospels, there's nothing that says, oh, other than in Luke when it's talking to Theophilus about how, why he has written this book. Right. Right. So I think that the fourth view that, that Brash comes up with is, is really good, and it's this idea of incarnational views of inspiration. And this is the idea of God, the Father, participating with God the Spirit through the medium of humans while that writer retains their voice and their specific understanding contextually of of how to see the world to make sure that the words in the Bible are both divine and human simultaneously. Right. And that, I think, is is a very cool way to look at it because Jesus would be incarnational as well. So that word incarnational talks about being enfleshed. It's God in human form, right? There's a mystery to it. So in in a lot of ways, I think that the inspiration of the Bible has some sort of mystery that's supposed to be beautiful and lead yeah. us to worship rather than for to get us to question things. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I think that's that's such a good way to look at it because it's very clear throughout scripture that the person's voice does stay intact. But I mean we can look at the gospels and we can look at the difference. Let's just say like Matthew and and Luke. We have we have Luke who was in the medical field, who was this this doctor. And so we see within Luke's gospel details that are not included in the other gospels because of who he was, because of his his knowledge and his training and his way of looking at things. He viewed what was happening from a different perspective. And so what does that do? You know, a lot of t- a lot of people say, well, why doesn't it, why aren't, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all four Gospels that talk about the life of Jesus and why it was important, why aren't they all four just the exact same book? Well, the reason is because there's four different people writing here from their perspectives and sharing details that don't contradict each other, but actually complement each other. That are intended to, to go to different audiences. Right. So... Matthew in particular is is for a primarily Jewish audience, yeah. um, and you can see all of these nods back to the Old Testament in fulfillment of the scriptures or in uh, typology, which, think about this, it would be very, very compelling to a first century Jewish person to hear about Jesus delivering laws of how we should live on a mountain. Right. I mean, that is just Jesus as the new Moses. Right. Jesus is the the new prophet to which we should build our entire belief system. And there are there are other places in which we see Jesus as the the fulfillment of humanity, right? Jesus as the new Adam. Right. That's going to speak to a particular audience in a different way from different voices that doesn't that shouldn't scare us but that should invite us in seeing that turn of the gym and right. seeing another part of God's character revealed by asking some really foundational questions that people don't 
want to, I don't know that they don't want to ask, but they find difficult to ask because they're scared to hurt the Bible, right? Right, yeah. And I think that the Bible can stand up to, to scrutiny. Yeah. It has for thousands <laughs> of years. <laughs> because, because it's the means by which we can commune with God. It's the primary means by which we can do that. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a, a great point. And, and to think that we could take the, the story of Jesus, the story of God, and, and just put it in, in one frame or to only look at it from one voice would really limit how we can explain our, our God. And so, you know, we talk about those different, um, different kind of views and, and different ways of individuals looking at it. One of the things that I think people get caught up in today, or that sometimes there's even kind of arguments back and forth in the Christian world today, is on the different translations of the Bible. And so, so Nathan, spend a couple minutes just talking about, you know, why are there different translations of the Bible? Why don't we just have one Bible that's written this way, and we all follow that if we say we're followers of Jesus? Why are there different translations? And then, is there a right translation? This is a great question, and I think that... You know, it kind of plays into that overarching framework of humans like rules and structure and want to be told this is the way by which you can behave so that God loves you, Yeah. right? First and foremost, the Bible is not an English document. It's not just a single document as well, but it is a collection of different scrolls uh, that have been compiled together by editors and authors over time. This is a good thing. Right. As the scholarship around biblical studies increases in its breadth and its depth of knowledge, we get closer and closer and closer to source documents, none of which, at least as far as we know, are extant, which means that they still exist. So we don't have the first copy of Matthew. We have lots and lots of smaller pieces of Matthew that then scholars assemble back together in order to have the Gospel of Matthew in and of its entirety. So there's actually a lot of different ways to translate. The first and the most accurate way is to look at what's called an interlinear translation. And this is going to go word for word through Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Sometimes it's Latin if you use something like the Vulgate um, that Jerome used to um, translate the Bible into Latin as well. And you take that word and then you find several English counterparts. There's a lot of words in Greek that don't easily translate into modern English because languages change over time. The interlinear is going to be the closest to that, but it's terrible to read. If you're wanting to sit down and like read through the Bible, you don't want an interlinear translation. This is for very formal study. If you wanted to look at a specific word, say, um, the, the idea of the spirit or the breath of God is, is the Hebrew word ruach, mm-hmm. right? So you can look at all of the instances in the Old Testament in which this word occurs to be able to see how the word interacts and is used uh, to, to describe what God is doing, what he is up to. Right. Um, 
something like the New American Standard Bible is what's called a word-for-word translation as well. I also use a more of a word-for-word translation. I have an ESV study Bible, which is an English standard version. What you'll find when you read something like that is that the language is very, very accurate, but the sentence fluency is, I would use the word clunky. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't really make sense because it's translated from a different language, and a lot of people mix their verbs and their adjectives around. Yeah. Uh, you know, I studied Spanish for seven, or excuse me, six years uh, in from middle school to high school, mm-hmm. and when you're describing something, you always put the adjective after the noun right. in Spanish. That's not something that we do in English. Yeah. So when I directly translate Spanish, I would say something like the backpack green, right? Right. It's not necessarily saying, oh, it's wrong because it's right. translated that way. It's just clunkier for right. the English language. Likewise for these word-for-word translations. Mm-hmm. They're great. Thought-for-thought translations are going to take a collection of words and then try to find the English congruent part. So something like the NIV, which would be right down the road, straight in the middle of this spectrum of different translations, is going to be like that. The NIV is an excellent translation. Mm -hmm. You should feel confident about about looking at this and saying, I am reading the Bible literally correctly if I read something like this. So it's going to take several words, and then try to find the closest match in English rather than word for word for word. So it's going to flow a little bit better. It's going to be nicer for reading aloud so that others can comprehend it. Now, there are other uh, translations still, like the the Living Bible or or the Message. Uh These are paraphrases. So instead of just a couple of thoughts that are translated and then organized to flow a little bit better, these are going to take the main idea of a passage and then translate it into modern-day English. You should feel okay with reading something like the Message or the Living Bible, provided that you say, okay, if I'm wanting to do something more technical about the study— this is not going to be a very good resource for me. I need right. to look for something more word for word or thought for thought. Yeah. It's okay for like a normal devotional to read Eugene Peterson's The Message. Right. It's great. It is language that's accessible for me. Yeah. It's not the place that I would go if I was going to rigorously study the words that are being used because yeah. it's not accurate in that way. Right. There is a... Um, there is a, a translation that has gained some popularity and notoriety recently um, called the Passion Translation that I would just caution people about. When when you have something like the, the NIV or the ESV or the NASB, these are translated by committees of people that honestly meet every couple years. If you look at the copyright information in your Bible, you'll see all the times that these conferences convene to decide on the ways to translate words. The Passion Translation is is translated by one person with a definite theological bend. And that is really concerning to me because, first and foremost, there's no accountability to other scholars there. The second thing is when you invoke the divinity or 
the 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 Bible is means of revelation, mm-hmm. and you don't have other people helping you out with that, you can really make the Bible say whatever you want. Right. And that's a really dangerous thing to be able to do because people's entire lives and their eternities are at stake here. Mm-hmm. The words that we use matter. Right. And we should treat them as they matter. So when when I look personally at the Bible, if I want to read something and I want it to be a, a particularly easy read. I'm going to choose something like the NIV. Mm-hmm. I think that the NIV is structured very well. It mirrors modern English um, in a way that makes things easy to understand. Right. If I want to look very, very deep into a, a passage, I'll go so far as to look at interlinear. Very mm-hmm. seldom will I do that um, unless I, I'm interested in a in a word like salvation right mm-hmm. what does that mean or faith um typically i'll use my esv i really like this study bible there are some things in the study notes that should be taken seriously there are some things in the sh- study notes that should be taken less seriously yeah the words of the scriptures should always have precedence over any study absolutely note. absolutely yeah, I, I think i'm reminded as you're talking about conversations i would have with with students when i was the the youth pastor, and they would talk a lot about, you know, I I open up the Bible and I just can't quite understand it. You know, sometimes that would be like the the King James version, you know, and they're using words like thee and thou and and things like that. And and what I told them in in talking about all these different translations is is you know start somewhere, and if that somewhere is opening up the Message Bible because that's the easiest for you to read, great. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're digging into something that that has at least a a biblical foundation to right. why it's written, um, and but would talk with them about but but understand what the point of it is and understand and I think that's so huge for us is to to say that here's the one Bible translation that I'm going to read and I'm going to read nothing else, you know I I don't think that that's a, a necessary. Um, place for us to be. I think that it's it's okay to be able to to go back and forth. I'm I'm very similar to you Nathan if I'm reading the scriptures just to be reading them, I'm typically opening up the NIV, but if I'm studying and I'm really digging in, a lot of times I'm opening up the ES, ESV. That just is what seems to 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 work for me. Um, but we have to understand what is the point of us opening it up right now. If the point is I'm going to try to prove to someone else what Scripture is saying, and I'm going to take a snippet out of the message and say this is biblical truth, and you need to change what you're doing in your life because of what this verse says right here, that probably isn't the best way to to look at it and to to go about it because it is a paraphrase. And so understanding the difference in translations, I think, is way more important than finding the quote-unquote right translation. Yeah, totally agree with you. And the stakes are really high because, you know, those those who are followers of Jesus say that the Bible should inform how I live my life. Right. And if we are flippantly using a translation for its unintended purpose, we can really do some damage to ourselves. Yeah. In the same way, I would go so far as if we read books of the Bible in a way that they are not meant to be understood, mm-hmm. we are doing equal damage. There's there's a part in in Mark 16. So the verse, the the very final chapter of Mark is is Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. Don't actually appear in really early manuscripts, mm-hmm. but they start to appear over time. And there's a, a line in Mark 16:18 that says those who um, 
talking about the followers of Jesus, um, they will hold serpents and drink the venom right. and be protected, be saved from it. That has informed the practice of some people, some some more Pentecostal churches, to literally handle snakes in their church right. services and to drink snake venom. Mm-hmm. That's not a directive, right? Right. So the state. I mean, people are dying from from right. this kind of stuff because they feel very strongly that the Bible should be elevated, which it rightly should. Right. We should use the Bible to inform how we live our lives. We need to read carefully right. because there are some things in the Bible that are directives, like love your neighbor as yourself, yeah. like visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction right. and to keep yourself unstained from the world, right? There are some things in the Bible that are not directives. Yeah, right. <laughs> so when when you read something like, oh, I should practice like this. Obviously, there's so many sacrificial laws in the in the Old Testament. Yeah, we don't do those now. Right. So do those, and those are directives as well. They're written as directives. So we need to read carefully to really understand our faith in practice. Yeah. Why don't we do sacrifices? Well, that takes a really robust understanding of the story of God and why sacrifices were used, and you know, really to look at Jesus as the the final sacrifice. Yeah. So I, I want to dig into that a little bit more, Nathan, as you're as you're talking about this and kind of, you know, we've been talking a little bit about what is in the Bible, where does it come from, why do we have have these differing um, translations, things like that. But let's let's transition a little bit now to what do we do with the Bible? How do we use it? And um, what you were talking about right there really hits on passages in context. And so how do we read the Bible in context so that we can understand that this is a directive from God, that he wants us to love our neighbor, but that we don't also have to drink snake venom? Like, how do, how do we determine that context and read the Bible contextually? So, so there's a couple of places that I, that I want to go here, and the first of which we need to read the Bible in its literary context. Yeah. That means both in accordance with the other verses around it, and it means to read it in its correct genre. So I opened my Bible up to Psalm 14 right here, and I'm quoting Psalm 14.1, and it says, there is no God. Uh-oh. All the point, I mean, I guess all of my occupation in my life is now a moot point, right? right? What I've done is I've ripped a little piece of that verse yeah. out of the rest of that passage, mm-hmm. and I've made it sound like anything I want to. Right. Now, if I start at verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Oh, little different. When Yes, and here's the thing that, that is really difficult, especially on the online platforms. You'll yeah. see people trying to justify their own position by taking one verse of the Bible and saying, Ha, gotcha. The Bible supports me, so God's on my side, right? I would, I would hope that the listener would think about the the book of Joshua, when the angel of God comes to Joshua and Joshua asks, "Whose side are you on?" And God says, "Neither." Yeah, right. <laughs> I think that that's a really helpful thing for us when we look at the Bible. 
we're not looking to make God agree with us. Yeah. We're looking to agree with God. Yeah. We're looking to literally imprint the nature and the practice of the divine onto ourselves. We are to conform to the likeness of Christ, to put it in Paul's language. So the first thing is looking at it in its literal context, literary context, excuse me, with other supporting verses. Mm -hmm. The second thing we have to do is we have to read it as its correct genre. So there is poetry in the Bible, the Psalms, the Proverbs, some Ecclesiastes, and, and some of the, the parts of Isaiah, I say I would say, are, are poetic. That doesn't mean that they're devoid of truth. It means that we need to read them very differently than we would read something like the biography of Jesus. Sure. So, or uh, the, the, the books of First and Second Kings, which are, are written as in narrative form, but they are talking more about historical events. When Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? I shouldn't be looking at that to say, oh, there's a hill where God is. Right. Because there is some sort of literary context that's saying that God is elevated. The place of God where he resides is somewhere that is holy, that is above us, right? I, I don't need to make these words mean something they're not. And when we write poetry, we use metaphor. We use simile. We use over-exaggerations. These things are are present in the Bible as well. And if we read poetry like history or the adverse, again, we're doing something to make the text something that is not intended to mean. That's something that we should avoid. As a large summary of what we've just been talking about, we need to do the best that we can to read any part of the text as the author would intend it to be read. Right. So that's a, a process known as exegesis, mm-hmm. which is taking the meaning of the of the the scripture and grounding it in the historical and the literary context to the audience for which it was intended. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's something that's so important because we have to understand the reason things are written. Why is the lineage of Jesus recorded? Because it fulfills prophecy of the Old Testament, and so it proves the divinity of Jesus. It proves who he is. But if we read the Psalms that David wrote in that same frame of mind, we're going to miss the point because exactly. what do we see with Jesus or what do we see with with David? David is writing out of despair and lament many times, and he's he's actually angry Why with have you God. Forsaken me, okay? right? Yeah. And so, if we read David's words the same way we would read the lineage of Jesus and not understand the context and difference of of the point of that, where we're, there's no way we can possibly get to the the truth of what's written there, right? We learn from David that it's okay to take our pain and our hurt and our frustration and our anger to God because we see David do that, and we see David called a man after God's own heart, that God can handle our wrestling, right? And then we can learn from, from the Gospels and the lineage of, of Jesus how he fulfilled all of these things, but they're so different, and they're written from such different perspectives and with such different goals in mind. This is why I think it's helpful to call the Bible a library rather than a book, 
Because in a library, there are different sections. You can go to the fiction section. You can go to the nonfiction section. You can find books of poetry. You can find um, philosophical works. Likewise, in the Bible, there are different genres within the Bible that we need to read how they're supposed to be read. I shouldn't read a proverb like it is always true, like I would read one of the laws. Right. Also, I need to discern whether or not historically where we are in the story of God, because I'm not going to read a law of Leviticus like I'm going to read the laws that Jesus commands yeah. or the commands of Jesus, because I see that as superseding. I right. see that as God intervening more directly in the, his own story. The, the Bible is not a story about us, right? right? It's, uh, it's written for us. It's definitely not written to us, and it's not about us. Right. So what we need to do is we need to say, okay, how is this being communicated to the audience, and how will I discern rightly the usefulness of a passage. So I, I want to actually go through this specifically, and I have this, this verse, Revelation 3, 15, and 16 right here. And I want to talk about, first and foremost, how when, when you've heard this or how I've heard this when I was in high school, before mm-hmm. I did a lot of work on, on trying to read the Bible contextually, and then how this might change a little bit as we look at the historical and the geographical context of the Bible. Uh So here's Revelation 3, 15 and 16. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear that growing up before you had uh, training in how to read the Bible? And and how was that taught to you? Uh, Yes, I would have heard that um, growing up. And it would have been terrifying <laughs> because it would like, uh, first of all, just the imagery of that. Like if you look at it from, you know, as a young person and trying to figure out um, who you are and, and what's in the, what's scripture, what, who is God, what's all this mean? The imagery of, of God spitting me out of his mouth is absolutely terrifying. And so, um, you know, and then what is it, what does he really mean about hot and and cold and lukewarm and uh oh like I could always reason that what I'm, whatever I'm doing is lukewarm because it could always be more hot it could always be more cold and so at at first hearing a verse like that um it it can be scary yeah I'd never want to be spat out of God's mouth just Amen. as a, a prerequisite there. <coughs> What this has meant to me before I had any sort of grounding in the context of this verse is that there's a fence, right? Uh-huh. And the devil loves the fence. Right. Amen, brother, yeah. right? Amen. So the idea of, of being hot, uh, we use meta- or metaphors like being on fire for God, yeah. right? So the idea of being hot is being someone of faith. Right. The idea of being cold is being someone not of faith. Right. The idea of being lukewarm is someone that is right down the middle, professes faith, doesn't practice it, or does not hypocritically practices faith. That's terrifying because that's me on my best day. Yep, absolutely. Um, 
when we look at this verse in context, John is, is writing this to the church in Laodicea. And there are two, geographically where Laodicea is, is it's in a valley. And there are two very, very close um, cities to Laodicea. Colossae, where Paul would have written to the Colossians, was actually up in the mountains. And their water was cold. It came from a higher elevation, probably snow melt, something like that. Cold water, we find as being useful for drinking. It's right. nice and refreshing, yeah. right? It it cools us down after like a hard day of work. I don't ever think about like, oh, you know what would be great after the mowing the lawn in a hundred degree weather? Lukewarm water. Yeah. Yeah. So it's has some sort of purpose. Yeah. Now, to the north of Laodicea is this uh, place called Hierapolis, and in Hierapolis there are these natural hot springs where. The, the medical wisdom of the time was if you have some sort of ailment, you go dip in the hot springs. Hot springs are refreshing as well. If you've ever been to a natural hot spring, it's amazing, right? right. It feels rejuvenating. It feels useful. Yeah. Laodicea was not close to a water source, so they had to make irrigation that came in to their city the water was of such poor quality that it would actually cause the people to vomit or spit out of their mouth. Oh. They're addressing the church in Laodicea. It's saying, be a person of usefulness. Right. Be a person that is refreshing to those who are, are weary. Be someone who is a helper to those who are sick. Right. Don't be useless that all you can do is be spat out of a mouth. Right. Reframing that... To hear that, oh my goodness, just because not every <laughs> action of my life is on fire for God is not the intended purpose of this right. passage, one, really qualifies a lot of fears that I have. It makes the Bible feel a little bit more accessible. Two, it helps me to understand what I'm actually supposed to do with the time that I've been right. given. So a good reading of the intended purpose of the Scriptures is one that is life giving. Yeah, it's still very challenging, and it still it's it's it really doesn't take away any of the expectation of the scripture. Exactly. In fact, it probably even raises it to another level. But what it does is it puts into perspective like this was a description that the people of the day would have really understood. It is their life. It's what they they understand in their culture and in their their city, which allows them to to truly understand the metaphor that's being used here. In my youth, there was a lot of fear mongering about going to hell. Right, and this was one of those proof texts. Yeah, for that, I think that reading the Bible more closely helps me to really realize that God is a God of love that invites me into life yeah. rather than it is up there tallying my usefulness yeah. or my my heat or, or my cold, cold yeah. so that he can throw me into hell. Yeah. I, I think that when we look at the Bible, that's the reason that it's scary to a lot of people is because there are eternal implications to it. And right. I don't want to ever say, no, there are not eternal implications to it. But I do want to say that God is a God of love yeah. and God is inviting us through the pages of the text, into deeper fellowship with him. Right. Not judging in 
the the sense that we have of being up there with a tally mark good action bad action right. good action too bad uh uh oh yep. you're out of balance here so. yeah i hope i got one more hot so i can be on that exactly. side of the fence right exactly yeah and it is like god's desire is not to send his people to eternal punishment his desire is love and 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 that is also part of the framework of of scripture as well and so as we as we kind of wrap this up Nathan, any other comments that you have about either um, questions that we can ask ourselves as we're framing Scripture, um, how we apply Scripture to our life? And I know that this is this is a much bigger conversation than than what we can have right now. Um, but do you have any any closing comments in in this part of of our interview that would help people further? Um, frame what they're reading in Scripture to to understand the context or apply it to their own life. Yeah, I think that one of the most helpful things that we can do whenever we're in a passage of Scripture, it can be Genesis, it can be a Le- Leviticus, it can be Revelation, it can be the Gospels. Here's what we need to do. Three questions to help you better read the text immediately, right? This is the the uh, Bible scholars hate him for this one trick, right? So here, here are the questions that we should ask. After we've read and allowed it to sink in, read it again. Yeah. But then here's the first question we should ask. What does this say about God? Mm-hmm. So when I read any sort of text, I should ask that question first. I should say... What does this say about God? The second question I should ask is, how or where does this fit into the story of God? Then and only then, after I've answered these two questions, can I ask, how might this mean something for my life? How might this require something from my life? Again, the emphasis being on looking at the Bible as the story of God and not the rule book for us. So when I read any sort of commands, especially the commands of Jesus, what I should ask is, what does this reveal about how God looks at the world? Mm -hmm. When Jesus is, is giving us the Beatitudes, we can specifically say that the kingdom of God looks very different than the kingdoms of the world. Right. And it is because God is a good ruler. It's because he is a good judge. It's because his purposes for bringing about human flourishing are better than ours. The second thing is, where, where does this fit in the story of God? The gospel is the process by which the kingdom of Israel becomes a kingdom of every nation, every creed, every yeah. race, right? So we're seeing this place where the, the chosen people of God totally shatters the barriers where the people of God thought that they were exclusive. Yeah. And the people who were well off thought that they had earned favor in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, what might this require from me? What might knowing that the kingdom of God is full of people that have been downtrodden by society mean for my life? Yeah. It might mean that I need to take a, a, a very good look at how I'm living my life and how I'm spending my time and make it look more like I'm a subject of the kingdom of God, believing in the manifesto of the king. Yeah. No, I think that's great, Nathan. Those are great questions to ask ourselves and as we're reading scripture. The only thing that I would add to that is is 
making sure that our posture is right going into reading scripture. And I think one way, at least for me, that that I feel does that is is before opening up um, the the Bible is is just spending some time praying and understanding that we all go through life with this filter of our life experiences and our our understanding and and we take that to the Bible as well. Right. And so to to prayerfully approach scripture understanding that and saying, you know, God, please help me to remove those filters that are are strictly my experience and and help help me to see your truth as I go into scripture. I think that's a a good posture for us to have because one, that's a humbling of ourselves and understanding that we don't have it all figured out. And no matter how much we study the Bible, no matter how much knowledge we have, we will never fully understand the things of God and, and the things of Scripture. And so um, I think that that's one of the things that maybe has helped me the most in in studying Scripture is this willingness to humble myself and understand that that I need God to reveal truth in Scripture because I I yeah. can't do it on my own. That's such a beautiful thing to, to just end on, is to say that we need to be more aware of ourselves as we move into the Bible. Nothing happens in a vacuum, right? And I'm not talking about a Dyson. I'm talking about the fact that our experiences shape the way that we view the world. And we've talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about how words have baggage, and that baggage has to do with our experience. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that there's real biblical support to this. The Holy Spirit is the reason that we can understand any of the truth that is within the Bible. I don't think it's as easy as just being like, open up, Hey, there it is. You know, it would be really nice to do that, but God is a God of process, yeah. and cultivating a relationship with Him takes time. Yeah, and hopefully, the whole purpose of having a podcast or a, a Bible Foundations class is that we can compel each other in our community of faith to realize that a, re- a relationship with God is worth the time, yeah. and it's worth a lifetime of wading into waters that are over our head mm-hmm. and believing that Jesus will take us through. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's beautiful. Nathan, I want to thank you for your commitment to to the, the Bible and understanding uh, where it comes from and and what's in it and helping our church family to, to be able to apply that to their lives in, in healthy ways um, for your commitment to this Bible Foundations course and, and seeing people um, come to understand the power that's in Scripture. It's a pleasure. I think the favorite, my favorite thing has been doing a lot of the the legwork out of <laughs> the public eye, right? Yeah. Because I feel a specific burden of not everybody needs to do all of this work that I've done, right? But if I can help people, and and I've had a couple people that have come to the Bible Foundations class that have said it's not so scary for me anymore, mm, awesome. and. If we really believe the Bible is the means by which God communicates with us, to make that a little bit less scary is a huge thing that that people can really capitalize and be led into a more abundant life with God. So that's what that's what I'm interested in, and I'm glad that that we've made the space to take the time to say that the Bible is hard, but it's worth it. Absolutely.